Turning your Bibles to 1 John, we began last week uh, our series in 1 John, the series 1 John, calling it uh, Without a Doubt of 1 John, because John, uh, the Apostle John, don't confuse the Apostle John with John the Baptist, two different people, but the Apostle John is uh, an old man, an aged man, probably the only living uh, disciple, apostle left of Jesus' original 12, and he's writing to uh, various churches a letter, a short letter, but he's writing them to instill in them confidence and assurance of faith. That's why we're calling it without a doubt, because he wants to shatter the doubts that the false teachers that have arisen in this particular time and place. This is a letter of crisis. This is a letter in which he's combating in a crisis mode those who are undermining Christianity, undermining the very person of, of Jesus. And so John is one of the, again, original 12, and along with Peter and James, uh, he, had a, he was part of an inner circle of disciples, had a close relationship with Jesus. They all had a close relationship, but it seemed that Peter, James, and John had a unique closeness uh, with Christ. And so the main problem confronting the church in 1 John is this declining commitment that has been eroded because of attacks at the very core of what Christianity is. Christianity is about Christ. There's a newsflash, right? Christianity is about Christ. And in this time, many believers were falling backward and conforming to uh, standards that and, and a life that was not biblical, failing to uh, stand up for Christ, compromising truth. And really, that's not changed. That's still going on today. It's been going on uh, for thousands of years. John wrote this letter, and you can go back and listen to last week. We spent a lot of time in introducing the whole letter. It's online at the website. You can go back and listen to it, a lot of detail. But John wrote this letter to put believers back on track, back on track. You ever feel like you got to be put back on track? Sometimes every Sunday is a reminder, i got to be put back on track. Well, that's why John wrote this, uh, to share the difference between darkness and light, between truth and untruth. There's no such thing as my truth. You ever hear people say that? Well, my truth is this, my truth is this. Well, it's like saying... My ruler is 12 inches. Your ruler is 15. Your ruler is... No, there's a standard by which God has given us. There is truth. And John is reiterating that. And he wants to encourage Christians. And thankfully, we have uh, a record of this testimony from this apostle that not only was Paul writing to encourage believers in the first century, but we are ourselves in the 21st century being encouraged to grow in genuine faith and love for God. And as our title of the series, without a doubt, he's writing to give assurance, to give confidence uh, regarding our faith, that by a confidence in the faith of knowing without a doubt that Christ is our life, that we've been given eternal life only through Christ, that we will not only grow by understanding what we possess but we'll also understand and grow in the benefits that every believer enjoys. So we're in 1 John, 
And he begins the letter by laying an essential foundation of this assurance as we begin. We're just going to, in the weeks ahead, we're going to just walk through this, do this, uh, not always verse by verse, but we're simply just going to walk through it and hopefully, and Lord willing, allow the Word of God to speak to us, allow the Word of God to give us instruction. That's why it's important for you to bring some way to uh, engage in Scripture, bring a Bible, use your tablet or your phone, be engaged, don't be a passive listener, take advantage. I've done the hard work for you. You just get to, you know, listen, take some notes. But this is Bible study. People say, well, I want to know the Bible. Well, hey, here's a newsflash. This counts. Take advantage of the time. And uh, be a learner. Be an an observer of what God says. And and I believe that's how and the means that God teaches us and shows us how to grow. But he lays a foundation. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 4. But the title of today's message is The Believer's Assurance of Faith in Jesus Christ. The believer's assurance of faith in Jesus Christ, that we have an assurance of this faith. And, um, and so let us read together. It'll be on the screen, but I hope that you do use your Bible, make a note, follow along, be engaged. We're going to read from 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 this morning. The Word of God reads, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May God bless His Word to us today. And this morning, as we operate from this uh, title that I've given it, The Believer's Assurance of Faith in Jesus Christ, I want us in these four verses to observe Uh, seven vital characteristics, seven vital characteristics about the Christian's relationship to Jesus Christ. Seven things in these four verses about the believer's relationship to Jesus Christ and why we can have assurance, confidence uh, in this relationship as believers. Remember, uh, what uh, in First John? What is it? First John chapter five, verse thirteen. You may have to go back for that. Uh, remember the theme verse of what John says. He he always gives you why he's writing, and this is later on. But it helps us to be reminded. He says, "I write these things to you who believe." He's writing to believers. When he wrote what we call the Gospel of John, remember John wrote the Gospel according to John. It's not his Gospel. He's writing the Gospel of Christ according to John. He wrote, of course, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the shorter letters, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. But in 1st John 5, 13, we understand the, the reasoning, the theme of why he writes. He says, I write these things to you who believe, to Christians, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. We could say that you would be without a doubt, know that you have eternal life. Christians struggle with assurance. And so, 
John as he walks us through with uh, this, this letter to us, to those folks in the first century, he's wanting to give us confidence. And so notice with me the first characteristic of this relationship and why we can have assurance is, number one, this relationship is exclusive. This relationship is exclusive. Look at verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning. What is that which was from the beginning? Well, that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. The main foundation of Christianity is not the speculations and ideas and theories that people have. It's about what God has revealed to us about who Christ is. The truth about Jesus is not up for grabs. There is a truth of who Jesus Christ is. And the prime way that God revealed himself to us, to humankind, the prime way that he has done this is in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. There's the religions of the world, pick whichever one, they're always geared to trying to reach God, right? Trying to work our way to find God, discover God. What makes Christianity so unique is it's God revealing himself to us. That's a huge difference. We're not working to discover God. God, in his grace, has revealed himself to us. And the Bible is consistent that the only way that we can know God is through Jesus Christ. John, in his gospel, said in John 14, 6, quoting Jesus, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm a way of many ways. I'm one of many truths. He says, I am exclusively the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, without exception, comes to the Father, can come to God the Father, except, he says, through me. I didn't say that. I didn't write that. Jesus said that. And Jesus said also in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you. He's, he's praying that prayer to the Father that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, the apostles who, you know, they, were, they, they understood exactly what Jesus taught. Do you remember the, the theme of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 12? They said there is salvation in no one else except the name of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. If you're wrong about Christ, it doesn't matter what you're right about. And so it's an exclusivity. But secondly, this relationship is experienced. It's not only exclusive, it is experienced. Also in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. This is John he was there, and we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Our experience of Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, has got to be based upon the truth of what the biblical revelation, what the Bible, the word of God says about Christ. Not other concepts and ideas that are foreign to Scripture, but what is the word of God that God has inspired, that God has breathed out, those understandings must be consistent with the biblical revelation, not our imaginations. 
And so notice in uh, several ways that we see this. This in verse 1, the experience of Jesus Christ begins with reliable information about him. That's what John is saying in verse 1. We've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched. In other words, Jesus Christ and the reality of Christ and his birth, his life, his death is rooted in the reality of history. Irregardless of what your faith and trust in him as the Son of God is, there is undeniable fact that Jesus Christ really lived, really existed in history. And the Bible is consistent with that history. It's got to be rooted in the reality of history. Uh, The Old Testament gave promises, we call those prophecies, that were fulfilled by Christ. Uh, Personal experience. People might have a personal experience, a, a spiritual experience, but it's got to be consistent with what the Word of God testifies and speaks of concerning this Jesus. There's a, there's a historical reliability, and we can trust in that. Did you hear my voice crack? I hope I'm not going backwards in life. But also, this information, listen to me, this information that is historically trustworthy and reliable, it isn't just information for information. It's not just accepting historical data. It leads to eternal life. Look at verse 2. This life was made manifest, and John says, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. This information isn't just an acceptance of, of data. It isn't just ascending like, well, I believe in George Washington. I believe in Abraham Lincoln. I believe in... No, it, it's that there's something that is this information is to lead to, and that's to lead us to eternal life. In 1 John 5.20, John would write, later on we'll get to it, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. Why? Why has he given us understanding? So that, you should mark down your, so that, here's the reason, so that we may, what? Know him. It isn't just information It's so that it leads to us knowing him. So this information that's historically reliable leads to eternal life, and the eternal life leads to a deepening relationship, not only with God, but with others. Look at verse 3. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. You may have relationship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, this relationship, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, we have on our schedule, 9.30, fellowship. (laughs) I don't think that's what John's referring to, okay? But fellowship means literally to share in common. The fellowship that we have, that John speaks of, there's two dimensions to it. He says not only... Is it a fellowship, a relationship that you enjoy by knowing God? That's one part of it. But by knowing God, you have a relationship or you have fellowship with us. So as you are growing in God and in knowing God, it should also equally be be true that your growth and your relationship and your fellowship 
with God's redeemed people should equally be growing as well. John would talk about this, about you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. You can't say you love God and see your brother in need and walk away. In other words, that what is consistently shown in our life is that as we talk about loving God and worshiping God, has got to translate in loving God's people. And you can't do that, I guess, unless you're in solitary confinement. You can't do that by yourself. Just think with me. What there's most of the New Testament that is written assumes that is written to a people that are in relationship with other Christians. You can't do that. Listen, and I'm not knocking anybody watching this online. I know there's reasons for that. But let me tell you something. I'm not crazy about this because it perpetuates this idea that it's Jesus and me and my TV. Hello? This is the gathered body represented in this local facility. Kathleen Baptist, guess what? They're gathered church. Victory, the gathered church. I'm going to start naming. I'm going to get somebody wrong. But anyway, you get the idea. It's the gathered body that it, it comes together in relationship. And our growing, if you're growing in godliness, and that is not being translated and you're growing in one anotherness, something is wrong. You with me? Something is disconnected there. So this eternal life isn't just a punching a ticket to heaven. It means that we are to live the God life right here, right now. And so this assurance that we have as believers has a third characteristic. We said it was exclusive. It is experience. But notice also that it is evidenced. It is evidenced, this relationship, and why we can have assurance in Jesus Christ. And in verse 1, just stay in verse 1. I want to show you five things just packed in verse 1. It's amazing, the Word of God. In verse 1, it says, that from the beginning. I alluded to this, but Jesus Christ is validated. We're talking about the validation. How do we know? How do we know that this is true? How do we know that Jesus Christ is authentically the exclusive Son of God? Well, it's validated by the historic message about him. You see, what John is doing, he's countering those who want to tinker with that which was from the beginning, refine it, improve on it, modify it. And John says, no, the message that is consistent that I as an apostle, that I have been commissioned by Christ to proclaim to you, this is that, that what we are teaching, what we are proclaiming, is consistent from the beginning. The beginning of what he's saying is the beginning of this ministry that Jesus Christ began to do and to teach. This is that which is consistently being taught and being shared. And John says, not, not that which some of these false teachers are peddling. And that's where you need to be discerning. You need to be discerning. Is this is what this person is teaching about the cross, about the person of Christ, about salvation, is, that which, is it that which has been consistent, not only with Scripture, but is there a historical consistency in the history and timeline of the church in church history? Be wary 
when somebody says, I've got a new revelation. And I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm talking about a, I've got some new insight. I'm always wary of any sermons or books that have the word secret in it. The five secrets of Revelation. The four secrets of a happy... You know, listen, this is, this, is, this is that which you can trace throughout history. And there's a value. I know some of you hate history. But there's great value in knowing the history, church history. Is it flawless? Is it, just, is it like any history? No, it's made up with heroes and zeros. Right? There's not a perfect timeline. But there's something about the history of the church that God's truth has consistently moved forward through attacks and persecutions, through heresies. And it's important to understand what, what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We think this is, we're the first generation that's encountered this, that, and the other, and we're really not. Um, this month is a traditional month because the last Sunday of the month is Reformation Sunday. At 503 years ago, I believe, that the history of the, what we call the Reformation period began when Martin Luther uh, led that charge. Martin Luther was not a perfect man. Many part, people were not perfect. But here's what was perfect is the recovery of the true gospel. That was perfect. And the true gospel had been mis, has gotten off chart, has gotten off course. And uh, so understanding that important history, and I think several years, maybe three, or four, three years ago or so, I did a series in the month of October, and you can go online and find the series called Anchored, and I did four uh, teachings, four Sunday messages on the Reformation, on the various truths of the Reformation, and you can go online, and that series, again, is called Anchored. But that was a watershed moment that history, the history, that the continuation of the history about Christ that John is talking about, that that is continued. But also in verse 1, he says, what we have heard, that Jesus Christ is not only validated by historical uh, testimony, but it's also validated by his teaching. He said, John says, what we have heard. When John says, we, he's talking about we and the other apostles, the other disciples, uh, that they had heard the very words of Jesus. Can you imagine hearing the very words of Jesus? You think, oh, if I could have been back then and heard the very words of Jesus. Listen, my friend, you can hear the very words of Jesus right here, right now. You want to hear, hear the voice of God? Read your Bible. You can hear it anytime you want. You can hear, and they heard, and they are saying that it's validated by his teachings, the words of Jesus. We bear witness to what he says. Even his enemies, even Jesus' enemies in the Gospel of John 7.46 said, never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. Validated by his teaching, but also in verse 1, Jesus Christ is validated, proven to who he is by his life and miracles. Verse 1, it says, what we have seen with our eyes. What we have seen with our eyes. He's validated, John says, by his life and miracles. We were there. We've seen him. John, the apostle, he's not talking about some mystical union with the Christ spirit. 
He's actually saying we watched Jesus live, teach before our very eyes. These apostles, they saw the miracles. They saw Jesus raise the dead. They were there when he turned water into wine. They were there when he fed over 5,000. They were there when he walked on water, when he healed the multitudes. They were there. They saw firsthand the 35 miracles that are recorded in the four Gospels are not complete. That isn't all because John would write at the end of his Gospel letter. He said, if all the things that Jesus did were written in detail, the whole world couldn't contain the books. So Jesus' sinless life, powerful miracles performed, that he performed, validated that he was truly the unique Son of God. We can have confidence in that. But also in verse 1, it says that we have looked upon. You see that? We have looked upon. This is that Jesus Christ is validated by the glory or uh, his deity of his person. In other words, we saw his, this is my word, may not even be a word, we saw his godness. We talk about his glory. Yes, Jesus was unique, the complete son of God that was both man and God, but we saw a glimpse of him as God when we talk about seeing him in his glory. And that phrase looked upon is an interesting word in the Greek. You know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And it means that it's, that word speaks of a careful and deliberate vision by which we interpret its object. It's interesting, the word theater, theater is derived from this Greek word. We observed, like on a stage, watching this magnificent performance of Jesus Christ when it says, we've looked upon. It's interesting that word is used by John in John 1.14. You're familiar with this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, here it is, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Most people believe that John is directly referring to something very specific here. He's referring to the mount when Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration, as it's referred to. You remember he took, uh, John went, and he took Peter, and he took James, and they saw Jesus Christ for in that moment. They saw him in his deity, his godness, his glory. Remember, he was conversing with Moses and Elijah. Remember that story? And they saw it, and Peter had some, some bad advice and suggestions in that. He was kind of caught up in the moment. But Peter would later write about that when he wrote in 2 Peter 1.16, Listen to what Peter the Apostle writes about that very event that John is saying, we looked upon, we saw this glory, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales which we made known to you, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. You can't deny it. Listen, all these apostles, except John, maybe again, there's some discrepancy, but he probably died of old age on the island of Patmos, basically in in prison exile. But as you've heard me say repeatedly, none of these disciples, apostles, ever recanted what they saw. And they were all either beheaded or crucified upside down or 
some other gruesome form of death. But also in verse 1, we see that Jesus Christ is validated by His bodily resurrection. You know, a lot of people could say they're the Messiah, they're the Son of God. They could say a lot of things, but I'm going to believe the one who rose from the dead. That's the one that's going to get my attention, amen? And so it says in verse 1, look at this, this is all in verse 1, which we have touched with our hands. Again, the, the, the Greek is helpful here. That is the same word that Jesus used after his resurrection when he appeared to the disciples. He uses this in Luke 24, 39, when he said to his disciples, same word, see my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself, and here it is, touch me and see. They said, we have handled him. We have touched him. This isn't just us having a mass hallucination. We've actually physically touched this resurrected body. Thomas, doubting Thomas, poor Thomas. Jesus invited him to put his finger in the palm of his hand, feel the holes, touch my side. Remember Thomas's reaction? He fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. He said, we have touched this one. We are eyewitnesses. This isn't just some fantasy. We personally have seen, heard, touched Jesus. And that is which, that is what John is saying. That is why we have credibility as apostles to write what we write to you, church, and why you should ignore these other ones that are tampering with the truthfulness about Christ. They have no legitimacy. They weren't there. They do not know what they are talking about. You see, when John's writing this, the events of the cross happened 60 years before. So you have what? at least a generation and a half or almost two generations that have risen up even within so-called church and who had never, this was, you know, this was, they were getting it on the reliability of those who were dying off as the leaders and teachers and all that they were beginning to have were these written accounts and it doesn't take long for generations to grow before they begin to move away from truth. And we know that from history. But notice a fourth way that this relationship is explained, or the relationship is explained. It's exclusive, experience, evidence, and fourth, it is explained. How is it explained? There's three words, and I'm using the ESV. Yours might be a little different. But there's three words that I want to point out to you of how Jesus, or Jesus uh, through the Apostle John, that... Uh, shares of how this truth about Christ is to be explained. As I said, this is not some deep mystery hidden for just a few. That's how cults and sects, uh, you know, that's how they grow because we have, we have kind of the secret meaning of Jesus. We have the, you know, you see this, we have the lost teachings of Jesus, you know, the lost scrolls of Jesus. No, he says, look, these are not some secret things only meant for a handful. He said, these are things that are meant to be public, to be made known. This is not exclusive. God wants his truth to be made known. He said that in Romans 1 when he said all men are without excuse because they can look at the creation and see the orderliness of a creator 
And that's why they are without excuse to deny the reality of a God. Now, it's these three words, and I'm using the ESV as I said. The first one is in verse 2, is the word testify. These three words describe how the apostles communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they testified. It means to bear witness. When you testify in court, what do you do? You swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth of what you saw or heard. They're saying we bear witness. It's a legal term in the Greek. We bear witness to what we, say, to what we, to what we have seen, to what we testify. That's the authority of experience. Remember Apollo 11? Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, right? It was Apollo 11, right? All right. I had to check my resident astronaut over here. Now, would you come to a seminar for me to tell you what it's like to walk on the moon? Because all I'm going to show you is a bunch of slides and videos and third, fourth-hand information, right? But if you had the opportunity, I think Michael, Buzz Aldrin, is he the only one alive still? Or is, yeah. If you had an opportunity, and not too long, he was up at Cape Canaveral for the, I guess, the anniversary of the moonwalk. Why is his testimony reliable? Because he was there. He did it. Poor Michael Collins, all he had, to, you know, he had to circle around and wait to pick him up, right? But they were there. They have an authority of experience. That's what John is saying. But also there's another word in verse 2, and that's the word proclaim. How is this being explained? We proclaim Jesus Christ on the authority of what, how we, what, what we've been committed, our commission. We proclaim. Uh, Jesus appointed his disciples, and by virtue of their authority, that's been transferred in the sense of this commission, not the apostle authority, but the commission authority to go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. He says, we proclaim to you, we announce, we are reporting to you that which we've seen and that which we have heard. They're proclaiming the message of the king. But then the last word of how that this was explained, we see in verse 4 when he said, these things we write to you. And we are writing these things. We proclaim Jesus Christ by written revelation. The apostles are the only ones that had the God-given authority to do that. And by the way, no matter what you hear or see titles, there's no apostles running around right now. A lot of charlatans, but there's no apostles. These apostles had an authority... And they had the authority to write the very words of God. That's when we talk about inspiration. Inspiration literally means, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired, but the literalness, it means all Scripture is breathed out. It's breathed out. When God created man from the dust of the earth, what did he do? He inspired him. He breathed in him. What has God done to his word? He has inspired it because these are God-breathed words. God breathed and worked through these apostles and different ones that had the authority. Now think about this. Had the apostles 
not obeyed the commission to proclaim this message, what would be the problem? We wouldn't be here if they had disobeyed. And what's the problem if we do not impart the truth of eternal life in Jesus Christ? That's our commission. Paul said in Romans 10, how can they hear if no one tells them? God has ordained the means of the communication of the gospel, testifying, proclaiming, written. He's ordained it to be public and to be made known, not some little secret knowledge for a handful of people in somebody's basement. So as Christians, we have assurance, confidence in the reality of truth of our faith in Jesus. It's exclusive. It's experience. It's evidence. It's explained. And fifthly, the relationship is to be embraced. It's just a short point. Couldn't let this go by. It's to be embraced. We are to embrace this truth. He says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, there it is, circle, what's the reason? So that you too may have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and Jesus Christ. You see, this is eternally meaningless if you and I do not embrace the truth about Jesus Christ for my life. If I do not embrace that Jesus Christ, that what happened 2,000 years ago, the undeniable historical fact and reality was for me right here, right now today, that Jesus Christ, that historical reality of dying on the cross, resurrecting from the, from, uh, the dead, that that was done to crucify my sins and to raise me to new life, that I am in Christ, as, as uh, uh, Austin said earlier, Colossians 3.3, 3, my life is hidden with Christ in God, that because of Christ, because of that historical reality of what Jesus Christ actually did and accomplished, I have new life and eternal life. I embrace that personally for myself. If you don't embrace it, you can believe all the facts you want. You can read all the books you want. But if Jesus Christ is not embraced as your Lord, as your Savior, there is no hope. The sixth way of this assurance in this relationship that John reminds us, and this is a relationship that is enjoyed. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The New Living Translation says we're writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. When he talks about joy, he's saying, I think what he's getting at is there is something that John is saying that if you embrace this truth, nothing makes me happier. In fact, he said in, first, in 3 John 4, there's a third letter, then he had chapters, so it's 3 John just verse 4, Notice what he says. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, that's how he referred to his flock, are walking in the truth. Nothing makes it, and he isn't getting out of this, uh, uh, wherever he's at when he writes later down the road. It's, it's not the luxuries of life. He says, nothing gives me more joy and satisfaction than knowing that my little children, that you're walking in the truth. Nothing should give you a joy that transcends all the craziness 
of this life on this dirt than the joy that comes in knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, of knowing and having the assurance and the confidence that you have eternal life that doesn't begin when you die, but eternal life that began the moment that you ask Jesus Christ into your life, that you have a life that can't be tampered with by an election, by taxes, by Congress. You have a joy that transcends it all. You see, we as Americans don't quite grasp that. But if we were able to interview and talk maybe to a believer in North Korea, I think they would have some insight into that. A Christian living in Iran would have some insight into that. And last, as Christians, we have assurance. John says, confidence, reality of the truth of of faith in Jesus. That is, seventh, this relationship is eternal. Verse 2, eternal. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He would say in verse 13 again. We'll be there in a few weeks. I write these things. This is our theme verse. I write these things. Remember, he said, the you who believe as Christians, because I want you to have confidence that you know that you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see what's at stake here? What is at stake is Jesus Christ. What is at stake is your eternal destiny. Why is John belaboring all this information in these four verses? Is he just a cantankerous old man who's aggravated at some young Turks coming on the scene and kind of bringing a new take, a new spin on Christianity? Is he just not wanting to give up his turf? No, because he knows, again, that if you are wrong about Christ, your eternal destiny is in jeopardy. So it does matter. R.C. Sproul says, ultimate truth matters, ultimately. Ultimate truth matters ultimately. It matters. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Your answer, eternity, depends on that answer, my friend. Let me just close with this statement. Many people believe in a Jesus of their own imagination And they have an emotional experience that they may say, well, you know, I've had some, I've been born again, whatever that experience is. But the test is when problems come up, don't believe it. And when problems come up, and they will, the test of that Jesus. If it's a Jesus of your imagination, it won't stand. If it's a test of, oh, I don't know, let's take our pick. You want the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? You want the Mormon Jesus? You want the Muslim Jesus? Yeah, Muslims believe in Jesus. You want the liberal, progressive, so-called Christian Jesus that 
You want the word of faith, Jesus? You want the Oprah, Jesus? You know, what kind of Jesus do you want? John said that what I'm conveying to you is the authentic truth about who Christ is. And the problem is, is that when these problems arise and they're not all magically solved and we go through difficult trials... And then the person concludes, well, you know what, I tried that Jesus thing and it doesn't work. Well, all I believe that you've done is just proven that your Jesus didn't work. You never embraced the true Jesus of the Word of God, of Jesus revealed by the apostles. You had an experience. When I eat pizza, I have a great experience. Experience is unreliable. John wasn't, you see, John, he wasn't basing everything he was saying just on his experience. Like I said about those Apollo 11 astronauts, experience is, adds credibility. But it was more than just his experience that he was talking about. Experience that is not rooted in knowing God. There's a quote I skipped one quote so I can read a short one that's not on the screen. I kind of read it last night and wrote it down, copied it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great expositor, Bible teacher, who's been in heaven for many years, I think since 1980. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of the great Westminster Chapel in London. He's a name you ought to be familiar with. He made this statement in his commentary of 1 John. He said, let me emphasize again that the essence of the Christian life, the theme, the objective of everything that the Apostle John has written that has been done by Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ did not come to earth merely to give us an exalted teaching which we can apply to human relationships, though that is there and and it does follow. He did not come merely to save us from hell. He came to bring us into relationship with the Father and himself. Why has Jesus come? To bring you into an eternal, forever relationship with knowing him. And John the Apostle says we can have the assurance of this relationship and those who make mouth service and adhere to something that's not proven and they leave, he would say to them, what he, he would write later in 1 John 2, 19, these people went out from us, they left us, but they were never really part of us because the fact that they went AWOL and deserted proved that they never embraced the real Jesus. Look at Judas. Look at Judas. I mean, my goodness, he was the treasurer. Do you not think he had some credibility? They let him hold the money. He had everybody fooled except Jesus. And his actions proved that he was a false disciple. True Christianity, real Christianity, authentic, historical Christianity is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture that we experience new life, a personal relationship with this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the joy that we have, we have a God-given desire, commission, desire to tell others about this Jesus. You've heard this illustration probably too many times, but of how the Treasury Department, 
when they examine, want to teach about examining counterfeit money, what do they do? They don't study counterfeit money. They study the real deal. That's why you need to be students of the Word of God. To have discernment that when error tries to make its way into your life or your family's life, you know the truth of Scripture. You know the reality of who Jesus Christ is. That you spot error for what it is. But if you never, if you just never ever give yourself to any serious reading or application of God's Word, and, the, and today may be the only open Scripture you'll hear, then I don't know. It matters. Truth matters. And I want to make sure, and I, as your pastor, I, wanna, I want you to be sure that you have the real deal. John the Apostle wanted to make sure that his little children, his flock, his congregation had the real deal. Jesus is real. Let's pray.